0: Well, thank you for the reading, Lucy. Uh, Friends, really great to see you here this morning. I'm Mike. And look, we've got a bit of an unusual passage today. Uh, We are looking at 12 chapters of what is pretty much all laws. And as Christians today coming to these Old Testament laws, we really do have one big question. And that is, what relevance do these laws have for us today. Now, I'm going to focus particularly on what's referred to as the Book of the Covenant, so that runs from chapter 20, verse 22, through to chapter 23, verse 33. But what relevance might these verses have for us today? Now, look, it's not an easy question, but in saying that, when we look at at least some of these laws, they can actually feel like they are still relevant to us today. And actually, it was back in the 18th and 19th centuries during the slave trading period that verses from these chapters, they were raised, actually. So, verses like Exodus 21, verse 16, let's hear that verse. Anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. Now, that verse and others like it ended up becoming critical in the abolition of the slave slave trading movement. And so in the past, Christians have looked at these laws and actually attempted to apply them today. Now, we still do this, I think, but some of the laws we look up and they resonate with us and we, we want to apply them to our lives. Uh, another example of this time, a bit more recent, happened over in the UK. There was a farmer called Tony Martin, Now, what Tony did, he shot and he killed a burglar. Now, during the media coverage of that controversial trial, uh, many pointed to Exodus 22, verse 2, to defend Tony's actions. That verse reads, If a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. And so actually many still appeal to these laws. Uh, A final example, this one speaks of how retribution must be limited. I think we probably all know this one. It's Exodus 21 verse 24. It speaks about how um, the the punishment mustn't exceed the original offence. It speaks of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now that logic of a proportionate response We still hear that today, don't we? Not just in the schoolyard, but I'm told in sophisticated discussions of modern law and justice. All of which is to say it's actually not just Christians who even today reference these laws. They're actually still very influential in the world at large. But of course, on the other hand, some of these laws, they can actually be very difficult for even us today as Christians to know what to do with. For example, we might wonder how do we apply Exodus 22, verse 1? That says, Whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. Now, why is that verse more challenging for us today? Well, first of all, it's in an agrarian context, so that's not us today. But actually, the reasoning there is not particularly clear to us either. Uh, Why is it five in one instance, but four in the other? So that's a a little bit more difficult for us to apply today, which is simply to say that what we have before us today is a bit of a mixed bag. Some parts resonate with us, they, they make sense, we're actually very happy to apply these today, yet others can feel so foreign and actually too foreign to really know what to do with. And so that does bring us back to the key question for this morning. What relevance do these laws have for us today? Again, we're going to focus on the verses in the book of the covenant. Uh, Well, let me suggest that as we begin, what we can't do is lose sight of the narrative context of where we're at. Um, I think we can say at a super broad level, that what we've seen so far in this series in Exodus is God making himself known, not just to his people, not just to Israel, but to the world at large. Uh, I think that was a recurring note throughout the 10 plagues as we witnessed the Lord go head to head with Pharaoh. That wasn't uh, really a a competition. Uh, There was no way that Pharaoh could compete His magicians tried, but by the third plague, they'd actually given up. Back in Exodus 8, verses 18 to 19, we're told that when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Instead, as we keep reading, since the gnats were on the people and animals everywhere, the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And actually by the ninth plague, Even some of Pharaoh's own officials were starting to heed the warnings, weren't they? Exodus 9.20, in response to the warning about the coming hail, we were told that the officials of Pharaoh, who feared the word of the Lord, hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. And so what have we been seeing so far in Exodus? We've seen God making himself known, not just to Israel, but to the Egyptian empire, to the world at large that he is God. And so that's a key message within Exodus, God revealing himself to Israel and to the world. And as we push past the plagues, that theme continued, but it, it started to pivot. Uh, while previously the people had been very passive, you know, we, we've noted many times in this series how God was the one who was doing all the heavy lifting here. But now the people, were to take on a more active role, which is to say that he was through his people that God would now make himself known to the world. And we heard that change reflected in those key verses from last week, verses which many have said are so crucial and central to this book, Exodus chapter 19 from verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself now. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And so, look, what are the people to do? They're to become a kingdom of priests. They're to become a a holy nation. Now, to do this, for them to live as God's holy people, they needed God's word. And actually, so much of the, the recent narrative has been highlighting this need. Remember how you know, after the exuberance of chapter 15, that, that chapter in which we heard the sheer joy expressed in Moses' song, we, we saw the um, delight reflected in Miriam's dance, this celebration that followed the deliverance of God's people from slavery in Egypt. But recall, how that exuberance would soon give way to a very difficult three months. In Exodus 15, verse 24, the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? And actually, that was the first of three instances where this, this newly liberated people are said to grumble against or to, to quarrel with Moses, all because of an unmet desire. First, It was not having enough to drink. Then it was not having enough to eat. And then again, it was not having enough to drink. And at the time, I think we're wondering, why did God create this need? Well, those events are presented as a test. It doesn't actually take that long to walk from the Sea of Reeds to Mount Sinai, but God had this journey take three months, so much longer than what it needed to Why did he do that? It was a test. Three months to prepare the people for the journey ahead. Not so much the physical journey, but the spiritual journey. A test designed to help the people see that what they really needed before all else was an unwavering commitment to the Word of God. Now, why do I say that? Well, notice what God did in response to their unmet need. On one hand, of course, he does meet their immediate needs, so he does give them water and food and then water again. But the first thing he did was point them towards the fundamental solution, what this whole test was about. And that was in Exodus chapter 15, verse 26. God says, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to the commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Now, it was only after he said that that he then supplies them with water in verse 27. See, the whole point of these tests were designed to help the people to see that their number one need was the word of God. And so, what God is saying here is that if his people are to reveal God to the world, then they must desire above all else to follow God's law, to live his ways, to heed his words. And so this three months was intended to shape the people's desire. And so then, of course, we have the giving of the law. Uh, Dave did mention the Ten Commandments last week, and he also noted that, you know what, you can fill a whole sermon series by going through each of these commands. And so, look, let me just move through them fairly quickly. I want to make just two points. The first, I want to suggest that the not only are the Ten Commandments very much concerned with the shaping of the people's desire, but they also provide the key to interpreting the rest of the law. Uh, That's why we're going to consider them so briefly this morning. So let's take a look at those two points. In what sense are the Ten Commandments concerned with shaping the desire of the people? Well, consider the first four. They major on God as the proper object of our worship, whilst at the same time they guard against our tendency to become attached to false objects. That could be images, or using God's name for improper ends, or an obsession with work. That just leaves no time for God. It's in that way that these first four commandments are to shape the people's practice of worship. Whereas commandments five through nine, they're to shape the people's lives more generally. And so under God, parents are to be another focus of our affection. Which is to say that while God is to be our number one affection, under him, it is appropriate to honour your parents. Whereas murder Adultery, theft, false testimony, they are four key areas in which we are just so prone to improper desire. Now, with that structure in mind, we should then view the 10th commandment as sort of highlighting the fundamental problem, which is that as humans, we covet, we desire the things that we shouldn't. Now, John Calvin famously said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory in that we we constantly create new false things to worship or pursue above all else. And so the Ten Commandments, they are to shape the people's desire toward God. And it's with that foundation that the book of the law is then given. And so that's a crucial connection to know. While the Ten Commandments are about shaping desire, the book of the covenant then fills this out in detail, what that actually looks like in the lives of the people. What a wholehearted commitment to God's word actually looks like. And so in the broader narrative of Exodus, what does this mean? Well, again, if the people can follow these laws, if the people can actually do this, if they can be devoted to the Lord, if they can heed his word, if they can live this out, then they'll fulfill their God-given mission to make God known to the world as the other nations see a holy people And so they want to hear why it is that these people follow their holy God. And so with that backdrop, what does this all mean for the relevance of the law for us today? Well, what I suspect is that we're starting to think that these laws were really quite specific to a particular people, at a particular time, at a particular place. That's the suspicion that I think we we probably have. And I think that's confirmed for us as we we delve deeper, as we take a closer look at these laws. And I'll note just two points of interest. First is that these laws, they really are bound up up with the exact situation in which Israel found herself. And so, for example, Exodus 22, verse 5. If anyone grazes their livestock in a field or vineyard, and lets them stray and they graze in someone else's field, the offender must make restitution from the best of their own field or vineyard. Okay. So these laws, they really do cover a variety of issues that you really would expect to pop up in an agrarian society. But at the same time, they don't really read like laws that were given for all people everywhere. They are very much situated. The second thing to note is that even though you know, some areas of agricultural life are covered, and indeed some areas seem to get a lot more attention than others, even still, you, you wouldn't say that these laws were particularly comprehensive. Now, as an example, I took a quick look at the National Road Rules. That's a, a document that covers the really forms the basis of our individual states and territories road rules. They sort of add to this document and subtract from it. That's 355 pages. It's not a great read, right? Uh, it's got 26 pages on how to give way. In comparison, the law here in Exodus, it is not comprehensive. You might, see, you might think as you're reading through it in Bible study this week that this is a lot of stuff. It's really not, actually. Many aspects of life are simply not mentioned. And so why are some included and not others? Well, I take it it was never intended to be comprehensive. That was, was more meant to be a rough guide, presumably zooming in on the more contentious areas of life. And so again, what, what relevance does it have for us today? Um, Friends, you'll know this, this is not a new problem. Christians have been tossing it around from the very beginning. And um, there's one fairly popular solution that we should mention. And that solution claims that within the law, we can discern three different types of law. Uh, First is civil laws. These are the laws that tell the Israelites how they were to run their nation. The second, ceremonial laws. They tell us how the Israelites were to engage with God at the temple. And third, moral laws which, because of the big change that happens with Jesus' death and resurrection, are said to be the only laws that retain their force for Christians today. That's a pretty simple solution. But let me suggest that there is a problem with it. And that is that it just doesn't match the way that the New Testament talks about it. In passages like Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, when Paul talks about circumcision, for example... What Paul he doesn't say so he doesn't say in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value because it's one of the ceremonial laws and so it just doesn't apply to us today. The New Testament never speaks like that. What Galatians does say, however, is this for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So the Old Testament laws hasn't been replaced with some subset of that law. Let me suggest it's been replaced by something entirely different. And so what do we do with the law today? That's the, the critical question. And how we're going to approach it is really by examining what does the New Testament do? with these laws. I think that's actually the, the critical thing that we need to look at. And to see that, I'm going to use the book of Galatians as an example. I think that'll help us a lot. If you sort if you of after this morning, sitting back thinking, well, what, was, what was he talking about? Go back and read the book of Galatians and hopefully it'll, it'll make sense. Now, um, as I read chapter 3, verses 10 to 12 from Galatians, try and work out why it is that the Apostle Paul critiques the Old Testament law. Okay, so for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Okay, so what's Paul's problem with the law? Well, his problem is that no one can be justified by it by observing the law. Okay, So you can't be right with God by law-keeping. We think, well, why is that? Well, it's because only the person who does these things will live by them. That is, if you want to be declared righteous by God on the basis of law, then you've actually got to keep the law. But we can't do that. That's the point Joshua was bringing out in the, the talk this morning, wasn't it? We, we can't do it. We're not perfect. So that instead of the law being a blessing to us, it's, it's a curse. In that the law actually shows us how far short of God's commands we actually fall. It shows us that we actually deserve God's judgment. And so Paul's problem with the law is really pretty simple. To use a phrase that, that is becoming increasingly more common... Paul had a problem with the law as law. That is, he had a problem with the law when people thought that they could be right with God by keeping it. The New Testament is very clear about this. Christians are not under the law as law. But instead, it's been replaced by Jesus, actually. Because it's through Jesus that we become right with God. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the maximum penalty for breaking God's law. But of course, he didn't pay it for himself. Because he didn't break the law. He paid it for us, in our place, on our behalf, as our representative, as our substitute. And so it's because of Jesus' death that, that all those who belong to him, or those who trust him. Well, we have paid the penalty for breaking God's law because Jesus paid it for us. And so we're not under the law. The penalty for law breaking, that's been paid and paid in full. Meaning that the law as law no longer applies to us. Rather, in Jesus we have died to the law. That's what we're told in Galatians chapter two, verse Christ died for nothing. All right, so what do we do with the law? Uh, Can we just ignore it? Should we just ignore it? Well, no, actually. Because God didn't save us so that we can now just do whatever we want. God saved us with a purpose. He saved us to be His people God still wants the world to, to look at us and see us and then want to know about the God we serve. Rather, in the words of Galatians, I think we can say we've been set free to love. So Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command love your neighbor as yourself. And so while we've died to the legal demands of the law, we're now called to fulfill the law as we love others. Again, in Galatians 6 verse 2, we're told to carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. And so again, just because Jesus has dealt with the legal demands of the Old Testament law. It doesn't mean that we're now free to do whatever we want. With the help of the Spirit, we are to fulfill, we are to embody what the law pointed towards by loving others. Now, critically, that means we're going to take the law in Exodus very seriously, actually. Because while we don't read it as law, So we're not reading it as legal demands that we have to obey if we want to be right with God. We don't read it like that. But what we do, we we read it as wisdom. We let it inform how we love others. And so in that way, the the law as wisdom becomes another part of our framework for Christian living. And what I mean by that, it forms another pillar, I guess, of the Christian life alongside God's character, who God is how God made the world in the beginning, where God is taking this world and what a a Jesus-shaped community looks like. I'm not going to fill out all the pillars of a Christian ethical framework. But let me suggest that's the place that the Old Testament laws have for us today. But I do want to explore that a little bit. How do we read the Old Testament law as wisdom? How do we do that? Well, what I mean by wisdom is we let these laws inform our moral reasoning. But critically, they they don't define, uh, they don't control our reasoning. Uh, Now, why I say that is because, again, that's how I think we see the New Testament deploy these laws. They let the the law inform how we love. Uh, Let me give you an example. I'll give you a couple. We'll take stealing. Now, in, in the Ten Commandments, God said, you shall not steal. It's the eighth commandment. And in the New Testament when stealing is discussed that the moral force of God's command to not steal is still there but it's set within a broader framework of Christian living. And so we read in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28 that anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Now Paul could have just said the law says don't steal so don't steal but actually the new testament never applies the old testament law like that he reads it as wisdom and he always sets it within a bigger framework of what it looks like to love and so what's going on in that ephesians passage well the person addressed there is told not to steal but to work so that this person has the opportunity to love by sharing with others and so again, the law in the New Testament is read as wisdom and becomes one part of it, a bigger framework for Christian living as we, we work out what love looks like in our particular context. Uh, another example, I mentioned Exodus 21 verse 24 earlier, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Uh, what does Jesus do with that law? Well, Let's have a listen from Matthew chapter 5 verse 38. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If another slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. What does Jesus do here? Well, there is a bunch, actually, that could be said here. but Let me simply note that the kingdom that Jesus is bringing in is radically different to the old covenant. Because instead of limiting retaliation, one will instead themselves bear the proportionate payback. Now again, a lot more to be said there, but suffice to note that not only are Jesus' words different from the Mosaic commands, they reflect the fulfillment of those commands, which is simply to say that for the Christian, we don't necessarily just pick up the Old Testament law and deploy it today. Rather, we read the law as wisdom and we let it become another pillar in our framework for Christian living. What that means is, the law can now speak into new situations. It can speak into new context. It can actually help us to see what God would want us to do in this situation, what it looks like to love in whatever time, actually, in whatever situation, whatever culture we find ourselves in. Uh, let me give you an example of that. Exodus chapter 23, verse 6. It talks about how we mustn't discriminate according to social class. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge. And do not put an innocent or honest person to death. For I will not acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of the innocent. Do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners. Because you were foreigners in Egypt. Now, again, while we aren't to take the Old Testament law as law, this is moral reasoning that can be very easily applied to our lives today. But again, we do it within the context of the broader Christian framework for living. Now, we actually could keep looking at the law and and other ways in which these commands should shape how it is that we love today, Um, For example, as you read through these laws, and and perhaps you'll be doing them in your Bible study groups this week, you'll see that people matter more than objects. That is very clear. We see that the more immediate you are to a situation, the more responsibility that you have for it, and, and so on. But just because these laws are very situated, it doesn't mean that we can't make use of them today. But we do need to be thoughtful about it. We've got to integrate them into our broader Christian framework as we keep growing our understanding of what it looks like to love in our particular time and place. And to tie that back into the broader narrative of Exodus, there's a missional side to this. We will increasingly become the holy people that God desired, living among the nations yet distinct from them a the people in the world but not of the world those who tell others not just who god is but what he's done for us and so let me finish with these words of encouragement from 1 peter chapter 2 verse 9 but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood a holy nation god's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which weighs war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong... They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as your people, you would continue to work in us by your word, by your spirit to change us, enable us to know how to better love others. As we consider your character, please change us. As we consider the world that you made in the beginning, please change us. As we consider your incredible plans for this world, please change us. And as we consider Jesus and his work on the cross, as we consider your laws, enable us to discern what love looks like and help us to live this so that others will see how we live, see how we love, And Father, when they want to know why it is that we live this way, Father, give us the words to say as we proclaim the excellencies of the Lord Jesus. And Father, bring many to find life in his name. And we pray this in his name. Amen.